Let's uh, get our session going today with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, help us to remember and to recognize that there is no authority except that which thou hast allowed to rise. Help us, therefore, to respect and not despise every proper authority, that our lives may be well-ordered and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last time uh, we hit on a lot of some of the basic big themes here about how the Bible lays out uh, what you might call a relationship between church and state. And just to review some of those key highlights from last time, we, uh, well, I put three principles up on the board. I guess we could actually break those out into five for the sake of clarity. First and foremost, God is the one who's in charge of all things. He's the sovereign. He is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, uh, which therefore translates into the fact that God is the one who also allows other authorities to rise up. God raises every form of authority on this earth. Um, and their authority, the authority that they exercise, to the extent that they do it well and uh, legitimately, it derives from God. Now, that means that all earthly authority is therefore accountable to God. They aren't masters of the authority that's been given to them. They are stewards of the authority that's been given to it. And remember, what's a steward? Um, somebody who is managing something on behalf of someone else. A steward doesn't own the thing they're given to do whatever they want to do with it. They're called to manage it in ways that they hope will line up with the intentions of the actual owner. Uh, in the same way, earthly authorities are given that authority by God and raised to that authority so that they can do the things that God, the real power, or that will line up with the will of the one who has the real power, namely God. Of course, we also saw that all earthly authorities are very often in conflict with God. Every person is, after all, a sinner, right? And therefore, every person, Christian or otherwise, is always liable to some form of rebellion or opposition or straying from God's will. And that doesn't magically disappear once they start exercising authority. It just comes out more obviously, really. Now that conflict, fifth principle here, does not necessarily result in them being removed from authority. That is to say, just because they rebel against God or misuse the authority and power that they have does not mean suddenly, therefore, God has withdrawn his authority from them. Just because a parent makes a bad decision or a selfish decision doesn't mean now the kids are free to say, you're no longer my God-given parent because you misused God's authority. Same is true with all earthly authorities. Now, those are the five basic principles. Any questions or commentary you have before we move on from there? Okay. Now, then we moved into looking more specifically at uh, what the Bible says about the kinds of authority that uh, God puts out into the world. And we saw that there's basically two big kinds. Uh, you can use a lot of different names for these things. Um, there's secular authority, I guess what you might want to call the state, you could call. Um, 
and spiritual authority, or the church. Other ways we often talk about these are kingdoms of the earth, and the spiritual authority being kingdom of heaven. And we very briefly kind of looked at how God establishes both of these things. Jesus is, again, in charge of all of these things. Both spiritual and secular authority, they come from him, right? But he gives them for very different purposes, to do very different things in the world as he rules over the world. Now today, I want to flesh out this distinction a little more by really diving into uh, what the Bible has to say about each of these. And we're going to come into some really important groundwork for what we're wanting to say later about how these two interact on the one hand, and also for implications about what it means for us as Christians trying to live under uh, both spiritual and secular authority. Okay, does that uh, sort of make sense, what we're aiming at doing here? Now, some of this will be a little bit of a review. We did touch on this in like the last 10 minutes of last week, which just wasn't enough time to really dive into what the scriptures have to say about this. So I think a deeper look will be helpful. And in order to do this, I want to dive more carefully into these categories we we brought up very quickly last time about the source of each of these authorities, the goal, that is why God gave these different kinds of authorities and what he's trying to accomplish there, the means, that is what they use to get the job done and achieve the goal, and the scope of each. That is to say, how far their authority extends and over who. So we're going to look at each of these in terms, again, of their source, their goal, their means, and their scope. Does that make sense, kind of what we're talking about there? Okay, and feel free to uh, interrupt with any questions or comments you may have as we go through this. But we'll start with secular authority. Uh, It's certainly uh, where a lot of the attention gets put on. So it'll be important to go very carefully through the spiritual authority as well. But let's start with the secular authority. And uh, there's two really important places in the Bible that we can go to as kind of really excellent summaries of all of this. If one of you could turn to Romans chapter 13, and then another one of you turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 17. All right. Somebody want to read for me uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authority that exists have, have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do, who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the word of the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is why you pay your taxes for the authority of God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everything that what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. All right. 
While that's rattling around in your brain, somebody read for me first Peter 2, 13 through 17. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Okay, thank you very much. Now you probably noticed right away that those two say remarkably similar things, both Peter and Paul there. Let's, let's start working through this. Both of them. What do they say, where do they say that these earthly governing secular authorities get their authority? God. Right. This is pretty straightforward. The source is not even slightly in question in either part. Paul directly says, um, there is no authority except that which God has established. First Peter says, submit yourselves for whose sake? For the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. So God is the one who establishes this. Which immediately translates into a, a bit of a duty, you might say, that becomes incumbent to us who are Christians. Who presumably, as Christians, love God, fear God, trust God, right? If you fear, love, and trust God, as a Christian certainly strives to do and presumably does do, what will your attitude be towards the governing authorities since you know God is the one who establishes them? You have to obey them. Right. You use a strong word there, obey. Not just respect in the sense of, well, I know God, I don't really, I'll, I'll try to think highly of them whether I do what they say or not. We can sometimes convince ourselves we're being respectful to someone, even if we don't follow what they say. And there are certainly kinds of relationships where you can do that, right? But Paul very explicitly goes on a past just honor, which of course, 1 Peter also says. He says in verse 5 of Romans 13, it is necessary, in other words, not optional, necessary to do what? Submit to the authorities. That is, place yourself under them and render obedience, practically speaking, to their authority and what they say. And again, Peter says practically identical things. Submit is the first word, in fact, Peter uses. Yourself for the Lord's sake to kings as the supreme authority governors, so on and so forth. Now, I, it should be qualified right there when we say that our duty is therefore to submit to them. And by the way, Paul is also very clear, you do this for conscience sake. Not out of fear of them, oh, they might punish me. Certainly that's a motivation, not an inappropriate motivation to submit to the authorities. I don't want to get a ticket, so I don't speed um, most of the time. <laughs> But not just out of trying not to get pinched by the coppers, but for the sake of conscience, as a matter of respect for God. 
But it's also important to qualify that you do this in appropriate aspects. That is to say, there are no doubt times, and Scripture even lays out a few of those times, where there are times where it's appropriate not to submit to, obey them. Uh, so let's just talk very briefly, or when is it appropriate to submit to the authorities, and when is it appropriate not to submit to them? I'm talking about secular authority, of course. Well, I would think if, uh, if what they're trying to get you to submit to goes against the Word of God. All right. Which you might have an issue. That's a very big one there. In the book of Acts, chapter 6, that one is even laid out very directly. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 29, where uh, the secular authorities over uh, Peter and John were telling them, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter's response was quite bluntly, we must obey God rather than man. In other words, a very, that's a very good handy rule of thumb here. If the secular government is exceeding the limits of its authority or using their authority towards ends which are completely against the goals God has established them for, then you don't need to submit to them because by submitting them, you would be disobeying God. Quite simply, if it contradicts what God tells you, ignore the government, follow God. More uh, specifically, like I just said, that translates into when the secular government is exceeding the limits of its proper authority. It is exceeding the word of God. When it is using its authority against the purposes for which God has sent it, it is doing things which are against the gut word of God. And you are free, therefore, to recognize that your higher obligation is to the word of God rather than the secular authority which is functionally denying the word of God. Does that make sense? Now, by the way, that doesn't mean, and this is an important clarification, that when the government, uh, say, orders you to do something that goes against the word of God, therefore you are now free to completely disregard the government in all aspects of its governing authority. It means, with respect to that one issue, you may disregard. Peter and John don't start completely disregarding all Jewish authority simply because the Sanhedrin ordered them not to preach Christ. They ignored that one directive. Does that make sense? Again, this goes back to that whole, just because they rebel against God's authority doesn't mean they no longer have any authority. It just means they're falling into a sin in this specific case, which needs to be called out, opposed, and in certain cases, um, not submitted to. But it doesn't mean you're therefore free from them in every aspect. Does that make sense? So just as a quick example in modern day, if the government came in here and said, you're no longer allowed to preach about Jesus, you have to preach about Allah, because we've decided the Muslim faith is the true faith. We are free, therefore, as the church to ignore. In fact, we are mandated to ignore that command from the government and continue to preach Jesus. But that doesn't mean, therefore, now, as uh, we can freely ignore every other regulation the government has ever imposed on us. Okay? So, that's the source. A lot of duty of uh, co uh, consequences for the duties we owe the government. What's the goal of secular authority, according to both Romans 13 and 1 Peter Two, what are they trying to accomplish? Order. Right, okay. In a very real sense, they're trying to get external order. 
I mean, not everybody can just do as they want. They want to have a few rules and regulations. Right. Yeah. If you if you got rid of all laws, do you think the goodness of people would trump all problems, and we would live in a perfect society? No, it would not. And who, one day I might decide that what suits me best is to come into Irma's house and steal that nice pie she just made. <laughs> the government is mandated to promote and enforce external order or to put it in the way that the exact language that Paul puts it in Romans 13 he is God's servant to do you good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword for nothing so right there Paul is saying on the one hand they promote good and punish evil same exact thing first Peter says where he says in verse 14 after saying submit yourselves to them they are sent by God to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. They promote external order. The question is, how are they supposed to get that done? Which, how are they supposed to enforce this external order and promote good behavior and curb bad behavior? By the way, you'll notice that uh, that idea of promoting good and curbing evil... That's almost identical to the way we talk about the first use of the law of God, right? When we talk about it as a curb. The purpose of the law, one of the purposes, the first use of the law, is to function as a curb. To restrain us from doing horribly evil things to each other. And to encourage us to treat each other with some measure of decency. The government has the authority to maintain what you might say is something much like the first use of the law. Curb evil, promote good. How do they do that? With a sword. With a sword! And they don't use it to cut the pie that you stole from them. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> right, with a sword which isn't there to help you cut your pie that I stole from somebody. <laughs> When it says sword, that's the, the way we, the, so the church is usually interpreted, and by the church I mean most theologians and the commentators on the scripture is understood that to mean force. They can actually force you physically to do good or to punish you for doing evil. So they are authorized by God to uh, give you material benefits, you might say, for doing good things and to give you material consequences for doing bad things. One of the ways that happens in our uh, world, I can give you a nice one, I just said, if I get speeding down uh, Highway 45 here at a good clip of 80 miles an hour, and I happen to run by the police officer, what is the police able to do to me? Or what are the police able to do to me? They are able to stop and find me. And is that a suggestion they say, we just want you to know, we, we think this is a fair amount for you, to pay us for breaking the regulations. <laughs> no, it's it's compulsory. If I refuse to pay that long enough, what's going to happen? Well, they'll take my license almost certainly. And if I continue to drive as though, well, who needs the license? That's just a, a recommendation, right? What's gonna happen to me? Eventually, they will physically handcuff me and put me in a jail cell where I can no longer be a menace on the roads. And there's nothing I can do to stop them. <laughs> that is an authorized use of force to compel me to behave a certain way. And if I don't, to force me or to uh, render me incapable 
of continuing to act against the better order. Now, just as a, a quick little addition to that, that the idea that they have the sword here and therefore are able to use coercive force, um, material benefits, material consequences to promote and uh, promote good behavior and restrain bad behavior. First Peter 2, uh, 13, in your NIV, which I think all of us have, it says, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, which isn't the best translation. It's really to every human institution, human creation. Uh, it's not just, in, the reason I make this clarification is you can get the idea from the, uh, the way First Peter talks that we're just talking about people who happen to inhabit the office. Specifically, we're talking about all the orders and institutions that people in office might create. We're talking about things like the laws, the regulations that these governing authorities pass. So the scriptures seem to give human authority, not just the sword in the sense of do good or not evil, but also the uh, capability, the authority to pass human laws. Human laws in distinction from divine laws. Human laws which are meant to promote that external order and promote peace and protect the welfare of the people within them. Obviously, there's no biblical second or there's no biblical mandate about how fast you're allowed to walk on go down the road, right? So I could say, huh. I don't think God, the, God gave the government the authority to limit my speeding. Therefore, I'm allowed to ignore them because it's not specifically given to the authority, human authorities. No, um, the Bible actually allows secular authorities to make any variety of human institutions, regulations, and orders to pursue that goal of maintaining external order, most simply stated as promoting good punishing evil. Any questions about any of that? Well, that does raise one very important question. Uh, what good and what evil are we speaking about here when we say that they're allowed to promote good and punish evil? What kind of order are they able to enforce? Can they enforce any order that seems best to them? Simply by passing a law saying, this is now good behavior, does it therefore count as good behavior? And therefore, okay, the government has the authority to define what is good and what is evil in our life together as a society. That's a fair question, especially these days where the government has a lot of things which Christians might always look at and say, I'm not sure if that's actually a good thing for the government to do. For instance, very big for instance, wasn't that many years ago that the Supreme Court ruled that homosexual marriage is now a legal thing that you can have in our nation. Well, if the government is able to oversee external order, and they're able to promote good and punish evil, and they are now promoting homo this as an allowable way of life and passing laws to prevent people from intruding on this human, this institution that's now legally protected of uh, homosexual marriage, does that mean Christians therefore have to say, well, it's within the government's rights? Well, that'll get us down right to the question of scope. Now, when we're talking about scope, we're talking about two different things. First of all, we're talking about 
who is under the authority, and we're also talking about the limits of the authority. Does that make sense? So we're talking about two different things. Just to deal very quickly with scope here before we dive into the real big question about what is the limit of that whole promoting good and curbing evil. Uh, like we said last time, we don't really need to say too much more about it. Pretty much everybody is under some kind of secular authority. Secular authority uh, obtains across the whole world. That's just a practical fact of life. I don't, there, there might be some people who are off the grid completely, uh, live in some weird undiscovered island that doesn't fall under the authority of uh, any nation or government. But they are very, very few and far between. And besides that practical reality of it's just the way things are, there's also a divine reason for that. After all, what is everybody in relationship to God? We are all sinners, right? So we're all prone to doing evil and opposing good. As a uh, theological necessity, God has ordained governments to manage that fact over almost everybody because everybody uh, very much for the sake of the continuation of this world, we need governing authorities. So who is under it? Virtually everybody. But what are the limits? That's the big question we want to talk about. Let's dive into this. Now remember, we mentioned this last time, but it bears repeating. The secular authorities that Peter and Paul were speaking about, both of them, what was their religious affiliation? If, they, if you gave them a nice a demographic form and asked them to check their religious affiliation, do you think that, say, Caesar up in Rome, Pontius Pilate down in uh, Judea, or Felix, who was trying Paul, or uh, any of these other kings, governors, and so forth that Peter was talking about, would any of them have checked that Christian box? Certainly none of them. How many of them would have even checked that Jewish box? Precious few of them. Most of them would have checked the pagan box. We worship many gods, including the emperor, by the way. And certainly not some dude who got killed in Judea as a Roman criminal. So, even though they aren't Christian, Paul and Peter both talk about them very explicitly as though they are still agents of God himself right? Verse 4, Romans 13, for he, that is the governing authority, is God's servant to do you good. In other words, God is working through this pagan servant, pagan person, and this pagan person is even, in fact, the servant of God. Not consciously, obviously, not as though he wakes up every morning and says, by the way, God, thank you for making me your servant and helping me uh, manage this empire. But in the sense that God has still given him a calling to enforce a certain amount of order to promote good and punish evil. And apparently, even the pagan emperor is able to do this somewhat tolerably well. Peter says the same exact thing, where he says in verse 14 again, all of the, after listing all these government kinds of authority that we're supposed to submit to, he says, who are sent by him, that him being God. In other words, they are expressly sent by God for the purpose of punishing those who do wrong and commending those who do right. So even these pagans are able to actually enforce external order in the sense that they actually promote good 
Things that the Christian Paul and the Christian Peter can agree with are good and describe as good, as though the definition of the good that the emperor is trying. So if let me make a nice Venn diagram here. There is emperor, there's Paul. The idea of what they think is good actually overlaps to a, a significant degree. So that Paul can actually say, in good conscience, not only uh, when he says that you, for conscience sake, submit to the emperor, but the implication there is you can, in good conscience, submit to these authorities. Because by doing them, what are you doing? By and large, you're only doing good things. By and large. That Christians themselves would call good things. Interesting thought. Well, one th a couple of consequences follow from this immediately. First of all, we can say that the, the limits, the type of authority we're talking about here, and what we're talking about as good as evil, it doesn't derive from the gospel per se. It doesn't de depend on a person having faith in Christ or all the other things that go with Christianity. Even a pagan can do this task and do it relatively well. Frankly, as we'll see through church history, can sometimes even do it better than Christians. So, by the same token, that authority is not also inherently geared toward promoting the gospel, faith in Christ, and everything that goes with Christianity. If it were, then you, Paul and Peter could not say that these governments were in any sense doing their job. Because if it depends on the unique dispensations of the gospel, then they were by definition as pagans failing and opposing it by every turn, right? But Paul doesn't talk like that. So the question then comes, since Paul and Peter are speaking as though this good that they're promoting lines up with what Christians can also call good, and this evil they're curbing can also line up with the evil Christians see as uh, evil, one very excellent way to talk about this is that the scope and the limits of secular authority are precisely the second table of God's moral law, or the Ten Commandments. Because what is, what is the second table of the law, if you happen to remember? I know we're reaching way back into confirmation days. Just as a quick review, when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we usually talk about two tables of the law. The first table um, deals specifically with the first three commandments. And what are those three commandments all about? You know, you shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What, who are, who, what relationship are all three of those commandments dealing with? They're all dealing with our relationship with God specifically. All the rest of the commandments, the fourth through the tenth, what relationship are they dealing with? Our relationship with each other. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Uh, don't tell lies. Don't, uh, I mean, obviously I'm summarizing them. Don't covet. All of those, interestingly enough, have to greater or lesser degrees, but in some form, been enacted by almost every government and empire in the history of the world, to a certain degree. Uh, I mean, society, in any form, can hardly function if you don't enforce some of those ideas. How are you going to maintain a society where I can just take whatever I want from whoever I want, whenever I want, without fear of consequence? What society will continue to function if I can just kill every Tom, Dick, and Harry who slightly bothers me? What society can function if I have absolutely no respect for my parents and my parents have absolutely no obligation to take care of me whatsoever? The answer is zero. We, 
we call these in Christian circles the universal moral law in the sense that not only does God command this as something that all creatures should <laughs> adhere to, but also we call it something like, almost like the natural law. It's just the way God constructed the world to work. While we breach these all the time as sinners, we can't on a large scale overtly breach these for a long period of time and continue to exist together in any meaningful way. This is, in a certain sense, written dimly on everybody's heart. And the second table of the law is precisely this universal moral order as summarized in the second table of the law is precisely what governments are authorized to protect and maintain and enforce. So that if I come up and start smacking Sue around and breaking the fifth commandment, you could reasonably expect somebody would report me to the governing authorities and the governing authorities would be very much right to come and stop me on the one hand and punish me on the other. Does that make sense? So when we're talking about good and evil here, we're talking about second table of the law, which has as this, con this very important consequence. The, the secular authority, the scope of it, is not whatever the society decides to define as good becomes good and evil becomes evil. They are hemmed in on every side by the second table of the law. That is the limit of their authority. They can enact additional measures, obviously. They, uh, there's nothing in the t second table of the law that says I have to go 45 miles an hour in certain roads. They can enact further rules to help promote greater peace and order in society as kind of extra fences around the law or extra ways of carrying it out. And they might not even know that they're doing this. Most of the time they're not. But, and that's all legitimate for them to do. But the second they start doing things that oppose that natural moral order, they are exceeding the authority they actually have by enforcing as good something that is actually evil or promoting as good something that is actually evil and punishing as evil something that God's second table of the law actually calls good. It's open rebellion against God's law. And uh, on the other hand, we therefore have a certain right over against every government to insist that they do enforce the second table of the law and that they refrain from breaching the second table of the law. Does that make sense? We have that right as citizens of the secular order. Under the secular authority, we have a God-given right to insist that the government that is over us act in accord with the purposes for which God sent it. Does that make sense? Not just saying this as Christians, I'm saying this as members of the secular, under the secular authority, and they have the duty to us to enforce the second table of the law and not exceed that. So let's circle this back around to an issue like homosexual marriage. Where a government is um, breaching, say, the sixth commandment in a very overt way, operating directly against the natural order that God has instituted and which by rights they ought to know. I mean, Romans 1 is very good at uh, pointing this out, that this is not something that they should be surprised to learn. I'll even read this little section here. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images. Um, skipping on a little bit. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator 
Because of this, God gave them over to sin, shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. They're talking specifically about homosexuality. Um, point being, when the government goes so far as to even lose sight of the natural order of things, that should be plain to even them as pagans, as atheists, as Muslims, or whatever else, or as Christians for that matter. They are exceeding the limits of their authority. Make sense? Now, of course, that doesn't give us any neat answer about, so what do we do when they uh, exceed that? There's all kinds of different. One way is we continue to insist that they stop overtly violating their own mandate and get back to a proper ordering of things. Fact is, sometimes, in fact, almost every time, we're always going to be living under a government that is oppressive in some form in the sense that it overreaches the authority God gives it. There's a certain sense where we just have to learn to suffer with it and deal with it while constantly insisting that they get back to their proper functions and working for change where we're able to. Does that make sense? As citizens of the secular realm, I'm stressing that right now. I'm not specifically saying as Christians. Does that all make sense? Any questions or thoughts or comments about that? Again, I'm not using the homosexual issue as like the only issue. I'm just using it as a handy illustration of the point. There are limits, but the government often exceeds those limits when it reaches beyond or goes against enforcing the second table of the law. So all these new laws that they have made up recently for law enforcement where they're tying their hands. Good question. Um, so your question is, are, how, do, how do these new laws about reforming police action and, say, limiting the ability of police to act, how does that relate to this? You know, um, I think it's, it depends on specifically what you're talking about, but by and large, the state is at liberty to say how it will enforce its own laws and how and to what extent it will do that. Now, that may prove over time to be an imprudent decision and maybe even a catastrophic failure. But it's not as though they're exceeding their authority by saying to their own police force, this is how you should or shouldn't enforce our laws and deal with people who are creating. That's just part and parcel to regulating themselves as they try to manage good and evil behavior. Does that make sense? And again, as, as members of the secular authority, we are, who are, of course, recipients and beneficiaries of the way they protect, we're at liberty, at least in this country, we're at liberty to speak our minds to the governing authorities and say why we think this is an imprudent decision. But I don't think we can say you are exceeding your authority by doing this. You might be doing something that will make it very hard for you to carry out your mandate, time will tell, and therefore we caution you to do something else, but it's not as though they're exceeding their authority. Does that make sense? <laughs> where, where is the, uh, the, hang, the, the confusion, if there's still some lingering? I don't know exactly. It's just, a, you know, I have friends that are in law enforcement and, you know, they talk about these new laws and how they can't do anything, how mm -hmm. they can not want to do anything, right? You know, because they're not allowed to. And I don't know. I just right. Just kind of fair enough. I, I, I kind of see it going against God's will, I guess, to to make these laws that says, "Hey, you can't punish these criminals because they're really good boys down at heart," you know. And, but they did do something wrong. Yeah, they didn't. You know, I mean, they're, they're up against the authorities because of some crime that they did. 
they're not allowed to do anything to them. Yeah, say, I, yeah I understand. Yeah. Right. Well, and again, that just, it, and it may prove that it's not the best idea. Let's say that. And it might even prove absolutely catastrophic for the people in law enforcement. I, I'm not going to give an opinion about that here just because I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of politics. I, I will point out that this is more an issue of what we call, I guess, prudential reason, where we're able to think and debate and figure out what does seem to be the best or the more effective and less effective ways of trying to answer this basic question. Because when you have the mandate from God, enforce external order, immediately comes the question, well, how do we best do that? Just like any parent gets the, uh, when they have a child, they have a mandate from God, therefore. Raise this child in the fear and knowledge of the God. Um, make sure that they are fed, nourished, clothed, educated, so on and so forth. But God does not give you a handbook of, well, go to section 8, paragraph B, subsection 3, and you will find the answer to that question. Parents just are left on their own to a very large degree about what, how best to do that. Same with governments in, in the way they exercise police action, as, as well as all these other actions. That's what uh, the whole political system in our country and democracy is largely about. It's just, it broadens the scope of who's allowed to participate in that question. There are societies that only allow a few people to answer and ask and deal with that question. Those old monarchies. The king was pretty much the only one who got to think about that question and anybody he happened to allow to, to into his circle to advise him. And if you weren't one of those, too bad, so sad. You just have to live with it, even if it's horrible. <laughs> one of the blessings and curses of democracy is that everybody gets to, to a certain degree, have a voice and not just an opinion, but a voice in that. And of course it means that whoever happens to have the loudest, strongest voice will, care, will get to enforce their will as to whether it's the most prudent, who knows. Does that make sense? But again, it is all within just answering and trying to deal with the stewardship that God has given you. And again, you can do that poorly or well, and we can certainly argue that it's do being done poorly, but we, we pro it would be going too far to say, it's necessarily sinful or against God's will, if that makes sense. Okay. Any other questions or thoughts about this? Well, I, I have a thought about what we've been talking about here. We've been talking about God all the time, but there's another thing in the world that likes to show it. Right. And that's the devil. He could be getting in there and underlying uh, making these people somehow do these things and you know it's they don't think that they're bad things but the devil's kind of making them think oh yeah let's let's get let's get everybody uh, mixed up and and uh, everything in a mess maybe I'll get them all on my side right. Um, and it's a, that's an important qualification. We're talking, like I said, mainly about God and his and the relationship of these things to him. We kind of touched on it, but we didn't really get into detail with it. When we talked about this uh, general principle way back at the beginning, that earthly authorities are often in conflict with God. I use often there in a very generous sense. It's probably more fitting to say always in conflict with God 
The question isn't about whether they'll be in conflict with God. It's always a question of to what degree and how badly. Uh, and the, a very big reason, there's two big reasons for that. One is, again, we are all sinful and corrupt. We all have desires uh, that conflict with the will of God. We all have thoughts that conflict with the callings of God. We all have um, temptations that we give into. It's just a fact of life. Of course, right there alongside us is the other power, the devil, who is at the bare, at his core the corrupter of God's good gifts. That's the devil's whole shtick, is see something good that God intends and gives and twist it up and try to turn it to bad purposes. We saw that with uh, last week. We didn't talk about it in this way, so it's good to bring it up and talk about it with uh, the Assyrians invading Israel, or uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and also Nebuchadnezzar invading the Babylonians, I mean, invading Judah. God was the one who sent them to do that. Isaiah very directly says this. They are my rod. He is the rod in my hand, the glove on my fist. And then in the next breath, God says, but he has a different intent than I do. And so I'm going to visit his iniquity back on him. Even as he's serving as God's tool, God is preparing a punishment and a correction for him because the devil has corrupted the tool in God's hand. Which gives us two very important points. First of all, the devil does corrupt and always work to twist things away. Us use the best that God gives us in the worst possible way. So again, the government is here to promote good, punish evil, right? But obviously, it often promotes things that are also evil and punishes things that are good. That's not unique to our time, by the way. Again, go back to the Roman government. That was just notoriously bad at extorting its citizens and all kinds of things. So, on the one hand, uh, the devil is corrupting it, so there's always going to be a huge and horrible tension between God's good purpose of the government and the authorities and what the governing authorities on the ground actually look like. Which, by the way, is also one reason that God uses the governing authorities as one of his primary attacks against Satan. And this is an important thing to understand. I wasn't planning on going in this. I guess we'll spend the remainder of the time on this because it's a worthwhile topic. God is always at, at work to preserve, restore, and uh, renew his creation, his good gifts. And one of the chief means on the front lines in his warfare against Satan and against sin is actually the very government that Satan still nevertheless gets a hold of and corrupts. After all, if the devil had his way, we would get rid of government entirely and start killing each other willy-nilly. There would be nothing better than if we all completely hated God and completely hated one another to the extent that we would just slaughter each other with reckless abandon devil would love nothing better than to destroy human life. As the scriptures say, he is a murderer from the beginning. And so God raises up all too corrupt, all too open to temptation governments that nevertheless, and this is the big important nevertheless, God still works through them in spite of the corruption to turn around and fight back against him. Not, of course, by the secular government doesn't deliver us out of the kingdom of the devil. It doesn't give us eternal life or salvation. What it does is it puts limits on what the devil can do to destroy our lives and rob us of the goods that God so richly wants to give us. Make sense? Nevertheless, again, the devil turns around and starts trying to corrupt even those so that it does become a curse, but God himself puts limits on what the devil can do so that the devil can never completely 
corrupt and destroy all government such that he could have free reign to wreak havoc on civilization. God is not overcome by Satan, and neither is God's will through governments overcome by Satan. Make sense? Now there, again, that's not to deny that the devil scores some pretty big hits and does some terrible damage, and that we should ever, again, insist on these rights and duties that I mentioned here as a curb against the way the, the devil corrupts the government. But it is to remember that we are not a people as Christians gripped by fear that Satan will win this game. We are a people who walk in the hope that God, as we'll talk about, I guess, next time, will raise us from the dead and overcome sin, death, and the power of the devil is even now, even through the secular authorities, able to preserve, maintain, and bless his kingdom. First, uh, first article of the creed, explanation of the catechism. Do you remember what it says? My reason and all my senses. He daily and ri well, now, now I got confused. Hold on. <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> it's good. It's, it's good. It's good to remember. Nobody always remembers all of these things. Um, I believe that God has made me and all creatures. Um, skipping a little to the second paragraph. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, land, animals, and all that I have. He daily and richly gives me all that I need to support this body and life. Um, that includes, by the way, good government. He gives us those things to protect and preserve all of these other gifts so that we can use them in peace to carry out the will he has for us with them in the vocations he's given us to use our shoes, our drinks, enjoy them ourselves, and use them for the blessing of other people. Um, make sense? And then it goes on, he defends me against all harm, guards and protects me from all evil. Not in the sense that no evil ever happens, but in the sense that ultimately it will not destroy me. God will still manage to give me all that I need to support this body and life in such a way that I will come as his child to eternal life. So uh, it's a very good vision that we have from the scriptures, and I'll qualify that by saying, which is the Lutheran vision of how God's rule over the world and therefore over and against Satan actually works. But anyway, any other questions or comments? We're running a little over time now. We'll come back to all of this. Uh, next time we'll uh, get into the spiritual authority half of all of this as a preface to getting to what the confessions say, and at that point we'll really be able to dive head-on into what this means for us in our lives today. Although you've probably already seen, as the questions indicate, this is already starts to help clarify and address very practical questions now. Police actions, homosexual marriage, those kinds of things. Um, but those more to come. So let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.